Hello and welcome to Starting Small. If you guys haven't heard, we're hosting Starting Small Summit again this year. We're hosting a live Q&A panel with the founder of Sweetwater Sound, Chuck Sirak, Cameron Smith, co-founder of Kodiak Cakes, and Peter Tuckman, the Einstein of Wall Street. Live at Bethel University in the Everest Roar Auditorium, we partnered with Idea Week to make registration free this year. So make sure to go to the link in this bio at ideaweek.com and register right now for Starting Small Summit, and I cannot wait to see you there on April 20th. In this episode, I'm joined by Ryan Bartlett of True Classic, producing butter-soft, affordable, high-quality, fitted premium teas for men. Listen as Ryan shares his POV in the music industry into shifting to an e-commerce shirt brand that's mission-driven. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Bartlett of True Classic. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, Where did you grow up, and what would you say your childhood was like? I had a great childhood. I was very lucky uh, to have great parents. I grew up in northern Michigan, a very small town called Cadillac. It's like 20,000 people, three hours north of Detroit. So very cold, um, very tough upbringings. You know, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, My parents did the best they could. But um, yeah, it was a great childhood in the fact that the people were amazing. Ultimately, I still have a lot of the same friends from from back home and I, I really miss those people. But um, man, is it the worst climate in the world to live in. And if you're trying to like really find new opportunities in the world, it's just not the place. Uh, and it wasn't for me. Not to yeah. say that you can't make a great living there, but I knew very early on that I wanted to get out of there. Um, so as soon as I flunked out of college, I was out of there. Um, that was my, my first year I went to Michigan state and, uh, flunked out and, and just got out of there and really never looked back. Yeah. Um, I'm curious at this time, what were some of your, like maybe hobbies or your interests? Um, did you have an entrepreneurial mindset growing up? Lemonade stands, anything? I did. I did. I was always kind of the, the consummate salesperson. I mean, my parents always told me I need to go into sales. No matter what I do in life, I should mm-hmm. go into sales in some aspect. It turns out I was just very entrepreneurial, uh, much like my stepdad growing up who uh, had a business. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about you know how to treat people, um, how to work hard, how to put in the extra effort. Um, and, and, and the sales is a big part of everything you do in, in entrepreneur land. You know, when you have a product, you got to be pushing it. You got to be talking about it um, just like I am now. So it just kind of yeah. never ends. And now, you know, I'm selling to investors and bankers and it just the sales game never stops, essentially. So, yeah. you know, but hobby wise, I was big into sports. Um, I played a ton of sports. Ice hockey was kind of my main sport, but I was, I played everything and, um, but I was also really into music and I really, uh, took to, um, well at first piano was not, I was not into that. I was kind of forced into it, Mm. but I gravitated towards drums. Um, and you're a drummer too, right? Yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to have parents that invested in me and I was like, I want to learn drums and they got me a drum set. You know, they put their money together and they figured out a way. It wasn't the best set in the world, but it was a yeah. black rock star Tama drum set. I'll never forget it. It was like a five piece. Yeah. And I slowly but surely added the pieces, like you know the uh, the giant ride symbol and the splash symbol and um, <laughs> and extra toms up front. You know, I I slowly built onto the the set, 
And uh, but it, the thing with drums that I quickly figured out after a couple of years was that I couldn't really write music on drums. You know, I could play a lot of music and I could play a lot of songs that I loved. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I just I was hitting a wall and that's where piano and guitar kind of came in. And my brother was really into guitar as well. So that really got me into it. And uh, he would come home from college and show me all the Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains songs that he had learned in, in at Central Michigan University. So, yeah, um, I was I got super into that as well. The grunge rock scene was was very much a part of my childhood. Definitely, um, but yeah, awesome. I, I'm curious, like when you uh, got into drums, were you gigging at all? I know it's hard to get out of that once you start <laughs> gigging. It's like you just love it, and it's hard to escape. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I got it, I was so young when I got into it that the only place you could do it was um, was school. So yeah. it was I I was in the percussion section, but so before I started really playing the drum set. I played in the percussion section in normal school bands, yeah. which to me was like the best hour of the day because essentially we would just bullshit with each other in the back of the room and just goof off for like an hour every day, play a bunch of random like percussion instruments. It was, it was amazing. It was my favorite yeah. hour. And then eventually when I got to high school, we had a jazz band. And it was really intriguing because I was like, man, if I could just make that. It was essentially the best musicians in the school played in the yeah. jazz band, right? So you had to try out for it. And I so I learned drums from the guy who was currently in the jazz band. I'm like, man, if I can just learn from this guy, I'll get in. Sure enough, uh, he got me in. And, um, wow. and so I played in the jazz band for probably three years until my senior year of high school. And, uh, and then I just quit eventually because it got too competitive. And the guy that I was in there with um, wanted it so much worse than I did. So I just kind of let him have the drum position. I was like, yeah, you, it's all good. But I did play in some bands. Um, I did a couple talent shows where I was the drummer in, um, in a rock band. And uh, God, we were so terrible. But <laughs> it was a lot of fun, man. Drums, drums is a great instrument. I know yeah, you know that. Totally. I love it. Um, at this period, when you dropped out of uh, Michigan State, what kind of path did you take prior to True Classic? What, what were you doing? I saw SEO on your resume as well. So can you describe kind of that? Yeah. So when I flunked out of college, I convinced my parents to give me one more chance. And I said, listen, my passion, because uh, Michigan State, I was supposed to go into business. And I just wasn't there. Like I, my, my head was not in business at the time. I was convinced I was going to be a music producer and that I was going to be an audio engineer. So I was like, listen, just give me this one last chance. I want to go to this school called Full Sail, which is like a, a media school where you can learn how to be an audio engineer. It's, an, it's a trade school, essentially. Yeah. And, um, and so they're like, all right, we'll give you one last shot. But... After this, you got to pay for all your degrees. If you want to do a bachelor or a master's, you got to pay for all that because you already wasted our money here at Michigan State. Yeah. So I was like, that's fair enough. So I go down there and and I got my degree in audio engineering, my associates, and it was an amazing school. I met some amazing artists and and engineers, and um, I thought, oh, this is great. This will be my career. And then um, so after that, I went to Atlanta, moved there. And uh, it just was not what I was thinking it was going to be. Like I was literally cleaning toilets, um, <laughs> taking food orders, getting coffees. And, you know, it's just it's a very unglamorous life working in the music industry early on. So yeah. um, I started doing that in Atlanta. Uh, I started playing piano at restaurants, too, just to make ends meet. 
um, and it was a really tough go of it. And I just got kind of disgruntled with the music scene. Um, I was also playing in some groups, but I transitioned from drums to piano in the groups. So okay. I went from, so I was no longer a drummer anymore. I just played the keys in um, this band uh, in Atlanta. It was very Roots-like. I don't know if you're, you, you're obviously familiar with the Roots. Yeah. Um, it was very similar uh, type of band, which is right at my alley. I love that funk kind of hip hop vibe. I yeah. always have been into that. Um, so, so I played with them. And I just wasn't making any money. I couldn't make any money in Atlanta. I was barely getting by. I was basically working for free at the recording studios, you know, because they don't pay. Yeah. And, um, and so I was just like, man, there's got to be another way. And I started noticing all my friends were making money playing uh, No Limit Hold'em poker. And I was like, what is this game? And I, so I played it. And I just got killed and everyone kept taking my money. The little money I did have was getting taken. Yeah. But eventually I got better and I got better pretty quickly. And I started beating my friends and then I started making real money. All of a sudden I would like go to a game and I would make like 800 in a night. And I'm like, wow, that would take me a week to make that kind of money or two weeks even at this yeah. point. <laughs> and so then of course the light bulb goes off and I'm in my early twenties. So I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be a pro poker player now. Like I'm just going to go all in on this uh, because you know, how, how do you not follow the money when you're completely broke? Yeah. So, so that started my poker journey. And then I thought, Oh, I'll just go to Vegas and make a living and be Phil Ivy and Daniel Negreanu and, uh, and take <laughs> everyone's money in Vegas. And uh, yeah, it didn't work out so well again. So yeah. I just kept falling into these pitfalls that I kept thinking I was finding my way out. And then I would just keep falling on my face and losing. Mm. But, you know, I just kept picking myself up and going, man. Um, I, I could, I could wow. talk about, you know, this for days. I, but. I love it. Yeah, I know. Such <laughs> a, a cool, resilient kind of journey. Um, how does this navigate into, I, I saw SEO. So how do you go into the direct yeah. consumer space, especially in clothing? from kind yeah. of the history that you just described. How do you go into that? I fell into that industry because I had developed such great computer science skills growing up in a world of Prodigy and AOL and like the early days of the internet and dial up and, and designing websites and, and using Dreamweaver and like all the old tools that you probably have never even heard of. Um, <laughs> that it, it was just, I, I was my world. The internet was definitely my world. And, and I was very good at moving things around in the internet and making things work. And I learned graphic design. I learned a lot of great computer science skills outside of uh, my degree programs, which I didn't really learn any of that from there. It was mm. just more like doing it. Yeah. And so when I got to LA, I was you know, applying for a lot of different places and no one would take me. And I had a master's, keep in mind, a master's degree and no one would take me even for like, you know, a 40 grand a, a year job. I just could not get a job. But one guy finally hired me. It was an SEO company. Um, and he hired me to basically be a jack of all trades, kind of like a, uh, a designer, web designer, graphic designer, content writer. And, um, and so I started working and I didn't know what SEO was at the time. I was just happy to have any job at this point. Yeah. So I got the job and I went in there and it was great. But I started learning very quickly that I was listening to these sales calls with these guys and they were talking about, you know, uh, it's going to be 4,000 a month and 5,000 a month. And I'm thinking, wow, these businesses are paying an arm and a leg for traffic. It's insane. I didn't realize how valuable driving traffic was. Yeah. And so once I learned that I was hooked and I'm like, I got to learn this SEO game. And so I slowly kind of learned it. 
And uh, eventually um, I left that company and, and went back to the music industry, started working for a music producer. Um, and that went terribly. Mm. Um, I, I was basically a, a taxi driver again. I went back to working. I, I should have known better, right? Like, I, yeah. Looking looking back at it now, it was like I should have just seen the path already because of Atlanta. <laughs> but of course, I learned the hard way. But um, I was like, how do I get out of this job? Basically, how do I get out? And I started thinking, why don't I create an SEO company? Mm. And I'll work my way up to page one slowly but surely. I'll work my way up the ladder for the keywords like you know SEO company, SEO Los Angeles. You know yeah. all these keywords that bring leads. So that's what I did. I just I went on this journey, and after about six months, I had worked my way up to page one, and I started generating leads, and I started closing them and making getting clients. Wow! And so I stacked up enough clients to be able to quit essentially. And after that, I just never looked back. And then ten years later, you know, the, here's the company, you know, running itself essentially. Wow! Um, and it's doing great. So that was kind of my my SEO background. Very cool. Uh, I'm curious, kind of like the navigate or. Uh, like the, the segue into here um, from SEO going into actually selling products then, does that funnel into each other? Were you doing SEO and bringing in like your products? How did you start outsourcing for those shirts? What did that look like? Yeah. So, you know, through the SEO journey, you know, through putting in my kind of 10,000 hours into digital marketing, I learned so much from other businesses on what to do, what not to do, how to spend the money, how not to spend the money, more importantly. Yeah. And so that journey helped me tremendously. So also my other journeys ended up playing a pretty significant role. You know, I put in my 10,000 hours in music. Yeah. That helped me on the creativity side. I Definitely. put in my 10,000 hours in poker. That helped me on the uh, learning how to fail over and over and over. Lord knows I did tons of failing. <laughs> um, it also helped develop a high risk tolerance, you know, poker. Uh, you know, putting your, your rent money on the line is no joke and going for it. So yeah. I, I just learned uh, how to bet it all on, 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 on myself, essentially. So packaging that all together, you know, you got 30,000 hours worth of, of, of learnings heading into true classic. Yeah. So when I hit it, when I, when I started it, I just hit the ground running and I just knew exactly where to put the money. I put it all into Facebook. Mm. Um, I knew that was the path early on. It turns out three and a half years later, I'm still putting the majority of our ad spend into Facebook. Yeah. So it's proven correct that it's just the best platform out there for entrepreneurs to be able to drive product. Totally. Um, not every product, but most products. And still, even when I talk to my peers in the industry, it is still by far uh, the most fruitful platform. But going back to your question, yes. um, SEO is such a long game that it didn't play too much of a part in the beginning because yeah. I knew it was going to take like a year or two years to really gain traction on SEO. So I had to really think about, you know, performance marketing and how do I take these dollars that I'm earning on, on the sales and how do I reinvest them um, so that it goes to work for me essentially. Mm. Yeah. So that was it. And the Facebook did that for us. I could quantify the return on ad spend. I could put that money back into the company. I could take all the profits and put it back because the owners, you know, the three founders, we didn't need to take any money out of the business, which is yeah. very good for building a healthy business. You don't want to be sucking capital out of companies. Um, but you know, a lot of time people need that capital to survive. We were yeah. lucky enough to, to already be making a living to not have to do that. So, um, we just kept reinvesting and reinvesting and putting it back. 
And we also kept it extremely lean. We didn't mm. hire a huge team. Yeah. We just, the three of us just bled out our eyes for a long time and did all the work and did it the right way. You know, yeah. we didn't hire a bunch of managers to, to also hire people. And we just said, you know what, we're going to do this the right way from the beginning. We're going to keep it, our OPEX very small. And even to this day, I run a very lean company. We're pretty mm. uh, understaffed by and large compared yeah. to a lot of our competitors and people around us. But I just believe in really keeping the company profitable, totally. you know, and not going into debt. So that's really interesting. Um, so for myself, I work with a very, very lean team, like the probably the leanest I've ever seen for like the growth we're having. I'm curious, what were those first hires? What was that first hire? And when was that along the path as well? The first hire was our CPA. So okay. you got to have a good accountant because even though my partner, Matt's background was in finance, he's not an accountant. So we need someone really watching the books. We need to make sure that we're um, that that all the numbers are on the up and up, and that you know, and things are looking good on the finance side. So that was the first hire. That's always the most important hire is to get someone who really understands the math and the yeah. numbers, because that was not my world. I'm the marketing creative guy. I was not the numbers guy. Yeah. So you get people in there that are much smarter than you to do the books. Okay. So that's number one. The second one. Uh, that we needed help with right off the bat was customer service because we knew that, it, it, you know, Nick and I could only do so much on the customer service side. We were handling yeah. all these inquiries by hand yeah. and it was just so daunting. We had no software. We had nothing to like help us like with a ticket system. None of that. Right. Wow. We were just like hand typing emails to people and like, wow. you know, it was insane. And we did that for <laughs> way too long, by the way. I, I definitely think, um, people need to get on to customer service sooner than later because we, we wanted, we knew we wanted to create like a Ritz Carlton level experience for people on the customer service side. We didn't want to outsource everything to different countries. We were just like, you know what? Let's overdo it on customer service. Let's just make these people feel like we're really um, we're there for them, which we are. You know, we, we always yeah. go to bat uh, on our customer service and people, um, you know, really know what they're doing in that department. So Brianna, that was our second hire, and she's just an absolute killer. She runs our whole uh, CX team now. And awesome. um, she, yeah, it was, those are our first two. I love it. Um, kind of just going to at the forefront then, uh, a little bit before that, what were the first options um, for customers? T-shirt options, was there a builder bundle option? What was that like? The build your bundle option didn't come till much later because it was tough to develop that because it had never really been built. There yeah. was no plug and play system for that. So I had to build that by hand. But um, originally it was just the t-shirt and it was, um, like six colors. So okay. that was the original. And I, I, actually, I even wanted to go more narrow than that, which I think is a very important thing to, to touch on very quickly is that yeah. if you don't go narrow, people don't know how to identify you. Yeah. You know, you just basically become the gap or yeah. Old Navy, or if you're a drop shipper and you sell a million products, you just become Walmart. And yeah. so people don't know how to nail you down to something and they have to be able to do that. So I knew early on, I was like, I didn't want to just do everything. I wanted to really just crush the t-shirt. Yeah. Whatever that meant at the time, I didn't know, but I just knew I wanted to go super narrow. So that's what I did. I created a shirt with a very specific fit 
and a very specific look to it and how it kind of layers onto your body. Mm. And so I knew I wanted to basically make something more fitted that made you kind of look better. Um, I didn't know how that would manifest at the time. I didn't know it would turn into this huge movement of look good, feel good culture that we live yeah. in now where it's really about empowerment and confidence building. Yeah. But at the time I was just like, man, I just want to make a better, I want, I want to, I want to make a better, uh, wheel. Essentially. I want to reinvent the wheel and I want to just go back to the basics and say, Hey, what can I do to make this thing better? And so, uh, the, the fit, the feel, and mm. ultimately what was really annoying me was that everyone that was making a great shirt was massively overcharging. And I just thought, why is it that these guys think they can get away with 60, 70, 80 bucks for one t-shirt? It's just madness. Yeah. So we got it down to like 20 bucks mm. and I wanted to just do black and white. It was my original idea for true classic. I wanted it, the whole website to be in black and white. All our photo shows should be black and white. Yeah. And that's how narrow I wanted it to be. But you know, when I brought Nick on as a partner, he was just like, there's no way we can build a big business on two colors. So yeah. that's a good idea, but eventually we're going to have to expand. So we just decided <laughs> to expand right out the gate. I gave up on that idea and I was like, all right, let's just do the six colors. And those six colors were uh, our best-selling colors still to this day, our staple pack, yeah. um, which are like a lot of earth tones and, you know, grays and greens and, and uh, blues, blacks, whites, all that. Mm. So that was the first skew. It was just that one T-shirt, um, our crew neck. We also had some V-necks and no pocket tees yet. But, yeah, that was the awesome. first one. Awesome. Uh, especially on the brand side, um, you lean more towards performance marketing for your marketing. Um, how do you kind of differentiate, kind of describing the feeling, the fit that you just described that differentiates from like the Gap or another brand like that? Mm -hmm. How do you get those consumers convinced? It's a combination of things. It's definitely not one type of content. It's a combination of UGC type content Mm. where you know people are talking to the camera kind of going over the clothing you have your um you have athletes that can kind of advertise that you know we have an activewear line so yeah. you, that's kind of a different style of advertising in itself um and then you have yeah, we do a lot of white listing so we get a lot of influencers to talk yeah. about the product and advertise the product we also do a lot of comedy and, you know, between all of those types of media, you basically run the gamut of the customer and you say, okay, I've covered all my bases now. You know, I've talked about the value proposition. I've talked about, you know, I've done ads where we're comparing ourselves to, you know, the Lulu's and the Levi's of the world. So yeah. you just got to basically try everything. Yeah. See what works the best. And then whatever works, you just keep reiterating and drilling into and doing more of that thing. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the biggest aha moment was the comedy aspect. You know, I, yeah. I didn't value comedy as much as I do today because I didn't realize that the great thing about comedy is it, it creates an emotional connection with the customer without selling the product. Yeah. So essentially... You can, if you can just figure out a way to make an emotional impact with that customer, and maybe it's not comedy, maybe it's drama, maybe you're tugging at their heartstrings, whatever it is. If you yeah. can make that emotional connection, then you got them forever because they're gonna remember you and, and they're gonna feel good about it, especially if you can yeah. create something that makes them laugh. When they see your brand, they're, they're gonna think 
uh, happy thoughts about it. So, yeah. um, so basically when I started doing comedy, uh, it was just this light bulb went off and I could not believe at how well it performed on paid media compared yeah. to everything else in the ad account. You know, I was watching, I was spending so much time making value prop content, just like everyone does. Everyone makes the features content, you know what yeah. I mean? Where it's just all about selling the features and features and features. Yeah. And um, I'm thinking to myself, even though things were going well, I was just like, I'm gotta have to, I gotta find a way to break out from these guys. And so that's where the comedy was the ultimate um, X factor. And the better I made the comedy, the more we stuck out. Wow. And the better the ads did. So I just kind of got obsessed with finding comedians and people who were super talented at writing and developing yeah. comedy. And now we have our own in-house team that does comedy. And it's so amazing that I can just walk in here, riff on a concept with our comedy writers. We can produce it, direct it, edit That's it awesome. here in-house. And it's, it's our own thing. We still use a lot of outside comedy people. Mm -hmm. but um, it's just so much fun to, you know, be a part of that process. Totally. That, that's so cool and unique. Um, with that, I mean, everyone, every guy at least can benefit from a comfortable, good looking, simple t-shirt. What would you say is the main demographic from that marketing? Have, have you found that? What would you say? Yeah, I would say it's, it's pretty broad. I mean, we are, you know, we're, we're, we sell t-shirts. So it's like, who doesn't wear t-shirts, you know, yeah. uh, 25 to 55, uh, male. Um, we're going to start doing uh, a women's line this year. So that's going to awesome. open up the demo quite a bit. We still have a lot of our uh, customers are women. Um, mm. interestingly enough, they most, no, I wouldn't say most, uh, I would say a good third of women in the marketplace buy for their men. Um, yeah. so you're, you're talking about like your married couples predominantly and, you know, guys by and large don't even buy their own stuff. Even a lot of guys here at the office don't even buy their stuff. Their, their wives buy everything. So, yeah. um, it makes a lot of sense. And then during gifting times, it even goes up to like mostly women, like 60% mm. of our, of our buyers become women because it's just like when father's day is right around the corner, Yeah, our sales are going to shoot through the roof because these women are going to be gifting for all the men in their life, their brothers, their dads. And for we're sure. kind of the perfect gift for gifting. Yep. Um, so yeah, pretty wide TAM. Also, surprisingly, when we turned on international last year, we thought it was gonna be like 7% of the business. It turned out it was like 30 overnight. Mm. And, and we realized that our TAM was much larger than we thought it was. Um, but you know, not that surprising considering we're plain clothing. We don't do yep. a lot of logos. Everything's very basic and that translates across every country, yeah. um, in the world. So incredible. Well, I'd like to conclude each episode with this. Uh, if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Hmm. I mean, there's so much, mm -hmm. I would say that most people overthink what they're doing. I think that most people that I talk to that come to me and ask me, what do you think about this idea? What do you think I should do? Where do you think I should go? And the answer is always, you just got to get moving. You got to start failing because yeah. you're so many failures away from getting to that thing where you win. Mm -hmm. So you may, you know, start a business and may not be going the way you think it will. But it wasn't that business that was going to 
put you to the moon. It was the third business. So you got to get through that first one. You got to fail. You got to realize you, you were in the wrong market or you did the wrong thing marketing wise. You got to kill it. Then you got to start your second business and you got to go through that again and see if there's legs there. And if there is, then you can build it to be a big business. If not, you got to wind it down and figure out a, a way out to get out cheaply. Yeah. And like, like I said, it's probably your third or fourth try where you actually get things right because you've learned so many things along the first two that, you know, analysis paralysis is a, is a real thing that a lot of people struggle with. And I just tell people like, you just got to get moving and you got to stop overthinking what an idea could mean to the world. And you just got to start testing things in the marketplace and seeing if there's legs there or not. And the market will tell you, yeah. right? If the market doesn't respond to your business on Facebook, it's not Facebook. It's yeah. you, it's the business, it's what you're selling to the market. So you need to reevaluate what you think the market actually wants and be super honest with yourself about that. Totally. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out True Classic at trueclassictees.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.